Section 5 of The Diary of a U-Boat Commander This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Diary of a U-Boat Commander by Stephen King Hall Section 5 Two days have passed, or rather dragged their interminable lengths away, for there is still not a vestige of news. I have been twice to the flat with no result, except to receive a piece of impertinence from the porter the last time I was there. No news. New entry. Still no news, and we sail in forty-eight hours. At sea, off the Isle of Wight. It is some days since I turned for solace and enjoyment, amidst the discomforts of this life, to my pen and notebook. What strange tricks fate plays with us, and how lucky it is that one cannot foresee the future! Here I am in U-39, but I must start at the beginning. My last entry was the depressing one of still no news. Well, I have had news, but it was like a drop of water in the mouth of a parched-up man. Another agonizing twenty-four hours passed, and I was sitting in my room about ten o'clock, trying to resign myself to the idea that the next night I should be starting out for my third trip without news of her, when the telephone bell rang. I lifted the receiver, and to my amazed joy heard a voice that I could have recognized in a thousand. It was Zoe. I was quite incapable of any remark, and my confusion was further increased when, after a few hellos, which I idiotically repeated, her clear, level tone said, Is that you, Carl? How are you? How was I? What a question to ask! I wanted to tell her that I was bubbling with joy, that a thousand kilogram load had been lifted from my chest, that my blood was coursing through my veins, that I, usually so cool, was trembling with excitement, that I could have kissed the mouthpiece of the humble instrument that linked us together. Yet I was quite incapable of answering her simple question. I can't imagine what I expected her to say, for upon reflection her remark was a very ordinary one, and indeed under the circumstances quite natural. But, as I say, in actual fact I was tongue-tied. I suppose I might have said something, for I next remember her saying, well, you might ask how I am. And to my horror I realized that she thought I was being rude. My abject apologies were cut short by her tantalizing laugh, and I understood that the adorable one was teasing me. When at length I made myself believe that I really was talking to this most elusive and delightful woman, I wasted no time in suggesting that, late though it was, I might be permitted to go round and see her. She would not permit this, as she said it would create grave scandal, and the Colonel might hear about it upon his return. I pleaded hard, and urged my departure in twenty-four hours. She was firm and reproved me for discussing movements over the telephone. She was right. I was a fool to do so. But Zoe destroys all my caution. However, she said that I might lunch with her next day, and that she had some new music to play to me. I ventured to ask where she had been, but this question was plainly unpleasing to my lady, so I dropped the subject. I blew her a good-night kiss over the telephone, 
to which I think I caught an answer, and then she rang off. Ten minutes had not elapsed when a messenger entered and informed me that I was wanted at the Commodore's office at once. A strange feeling of uneasiness and that of impending misfortune overcame me. I felt like a naughty schoolboy about to interview the headmaster. I followed the messenger into the Commodore's office and found myself alone with the great man. He was seated at a huge roll-top desk, which was the only article of furniture in a room which was, to all intents and purposes, papered with large-scale charts of the east and south coast of England, and of the Channel and North Sea. The Commodore was sealing an envelope as I came in. He looked up and saw me. Then, without taking any further notice of me, he resumed his business with the envelope. I felt that I was in the presence of a personality, and I was, for old man Max is one of the ten men who count in the naval administration. He had a reading lamp on his desk, and I remember noticing that the light shining through its green shade imparted a yellow parchment-like effect to the top of his old bald head. With dainty care he finished sealing the envelope, then, picking up a telephone transmitter, he snapped, Admiralty. In about a minute he was connected, and to my astonishment I realized that he was talking to the duty captain of the operations department in Berlin. His words chilled my heart, for he said, Commodore speaking, U-39 sails at 2 a.m. for Operation F.Q.H. Repeat. His words were apparently repeated to his satisfaction. For while I was vainly endeavouring to convince myself that I was unconnected with the sailing of U-39, he banged the receiver into place old man Max does everything in bangs, and snapped at me, "'You, Lieutenant von Schenk!' I admitted I was, then heard this disgusting news. Kranz, 1st Lieutenant U-39, reported suddenly ill, Seabrugge, poisoning, you relieve him. Ship sails in one hour forty minutes from now. My car leaves here in forty minutes and takes you to Zeebrugge. Here are operation orders. Inform von Weissmann he acknowledges receipt direct to me on phone. That's all. He handed me the envelope, and I suppose I walked outside. At least I found myself in the corridor, turning the confounded envelope round and round. For one mad moment I felt like rushing in and saying, but, sir, you don't understand I'm lunching with Zoe tomorrow. Then the mental picture which this idea conjured up made me shake with suppressed laughter, and I remembered that war was war, and that I had only thirty-five minutes in which to collect such gear as I had handy, most of my sea things being in UC-47, and say good-bye to Zoe. I ran to my room, and made the corridors echo with shouts for my faithful Adolf. The excellent man was soon on the scene, and whilst he stuffed underclothing, towels, and other necessary gear into a bag he had purloined from someone's room, I rang up Zoe. I wasted ten minutes getting through, but at last I heard a deliciously sleepy voice murmur, "'Who's that?' I told her, and added that I was off. To my secret joy, and intensely disappointed, and long-drawn, "'Ooh!' came over the wire. So she does care a bit, I thought. Mad ideas of pretending to be suddenly ill crossed my mind, anything to gain twenty-four hours. But the fatherland is above all such considerations, 
and after some pleasant talk and many wishes of good luck from the darling girl, with a heavy heart I bade her good night. The old man's car, which is a sixty-horsepower Benz, was waiting at the mess entrance, and once clear of the sentries we raced down the flat, well-metalled road to Seabrook in a very short time. The guard at Bruges Barrier had phoned us through to the Zeebrugge fortified zone, and we were admitted without delay. In three-quarters of an hour from my interview with old Max I was scrambling across a row of U-boats to reach my new ship, U-39. I went down the after-hatch, reported myself to von Weissmann, and delivered his orders to him, of which he acknowledged receipt direct to the Commodore according to instructions. Von Weissmann is a very different stamp of man to Alton. Of medium height, he has sandy-coloured hair, steel-grey eyes, and a protruding jaw. He is what he looks, a fine North Prussian, and is of course of excellent family, as the Weissmanns have been settled in Grinets for a long period. He struck me as being about thirty years of age, and on his heart he wore the cross of the second class. I have heard of him before, as being well in the running towards an ordre pour le mérite. An interesting chart is hanging in the wardrobe, on which is marked the last resting place of every ship he has sunk. He puts a coloured dot, the tint of which varies with the tonnage, black up to two thousand, blue from two thousand to five thousand, brown five thousand to eight thousand, green eight thousand to eleven thousand, and a red spot with a ship's name for anything over eleven thousand. He has got about a hundred and twenty thousand tons at present. He opposes the Arnold de la Perriere school of thought, which pins faith on the gun, and Weissman has done nearly all his work with a good old torpedo. Altogether, undoubtedly a man to serve with. The U-39 was in that buzzing and semi-active condition which to a trained eye is a sure indication that the ship is about to sail. Punctually at five minutes to two a.m., Weissman went to the bridge, and at two a.m. the wires were slipped and we started on a ten days' trip. As the dim lights on the mole disappeared and the ceaseless fountain of star-shells, mingling with the flashing of guns, rose inland on our port beam, my mind travelled overland to the flat at Bruges, and I wondered whether Zoe was lying awake listening to the ceaseless rumble of the Flanders cannon. We went on at full speed, as it was our intention to pass the Dover Straits before dawn. Though our Intelligence Bureau issues the most alarming reports as to the frightfulness of the defences here, I was agreeably surprised at the ease with which we passed. Von Weissmann, to whom I had hinted that we might find the passage tricky, rather laughed at my suggestion, and described to me his method, which, at all events, has the merit of simplicity. He always goes through with the tide, so as to take as short a time as possible, and he always decides on a course and steers it as closely as possible, keeping to the surface unless he sights anything, and diving as soon as anything shows up. Even if he dives, he goes on as fast as possible on his course, irrespective of whether he is being bombed or not. I must say it worked very well last night. We shaped a course to pass five miles west of Grignay, and when that light, which for some reason the French had commodiously lit that night, was abeam, we sighted a black object, 
probably a trawler or destroyer, about half a dozen miles away right ahead. Weissman immediately dived and, without deviating a degree from his course, held on at three-quarters speed on the motors. Some time later the hydrophone watchkeeper reported the sound of propellers in his listeners, and that he judged them to be close at hand, so I imagine we passed very nearly directly underneath whatever it was. After an hour's submerging we rose, and found dawn breaking over a leaden and choppy sea. Nothing being in sight, we continued on the surface for an hour, charging batteries with a starboard engine, five hundred amps on each. But at nine a.m., the clouds lying low and an aerial patrol being frequent hereabouts, we dived and cruised steadily down channel at slow speed, keeping periscope depth. Several times in the course of the forenoon we sighted small destroyers and convoy craft in the distance. Footnote 1. Probably P-boats. End of footnote. All steering westerly. They were probably returning from escorting troop ships over to France last night. In every case we went to sixty feet long before they could have seen our stick. Footnote 2. Periscope. End of footnote. Weissman is evidently as cautious in this matter as he is hardy in others. The more I see of him, the more I like him. He is a man of breeding, and it is of value to serve in this boat. As I write, we are on the surface about ten miles east of the Isle of Wight, still steering down channel. Tonight at midnight we report our position to Zeebrugge. Up till now we have maintained wireless silence, for fear of the British and French directional stations picking up our signals and fixing our position. After supper this evening, von Weissmann explained to me the general plan of our operations for the next eight days. Our cruising billet is about 150 miles southwest of the Scillies, at the focal point where trade for Liverpool and Bristol and the up-channel trade diverges. Von Weissmann says that this is a plum billet, and we should do well. I feel this is going to be better than those piffling little mine-laying trips, and though we shall be away ten days, it will qualify me for four days' leave in Belgium. New Entry There was nearly an awkward moment last night, or, rather, there was an awkward moment and nearly an awkward accident. I relieved the navigator at midnight. The pilot is an unassuming individual called Siegel and took on the middle watch. It was blowing about force four from the southwest, and a nasty short, lumpy sea was running which caught us just on the port bow. About once every ten seconds she missed her step with the waves, and, dipping her nose into it, shoveled up tons of water, which, as the bow lifted, raced aft, and, breaking against the gun, flung itself in clouds of spray against the bridge. In a very few minutes every exposed portion of me was streaming with water. At about two a.m. I had turned my back to the sea for a moment, and my thoughts were for an instant in Bruges, when, on facing forward once again, I saw a sight which effectually brought me back to earth. This was the spectacle of two black shapes, evidently steamers, one on either bow, distant, I should estimate, six hundred or seven hundred meters. I had to make a quick decision, and I decided that to fire a torpedo in that sea, with any hope of a hit, especially with a boat on surface, was useless. 
furthermore that at any moment either of the steamers might sight us from their high bridge and turn and ram. These thoughts were the work of an instant, and I at once rang the diving bell, and, pushing the lookout before me, in five seconds I was in the conning tower and had the hatch down. I at once proceeded down into the boat, and the first thing that struck my eye was the diving gauge with the needle practically stationary at two metres. The boat was not going down properly, and for an instant I was rudely shaken, until a cool voice from the wardroom remarked, Helm hard a port, an order that was instantly obeyed, and as she began to turn the moving needle on the depth gauge began its journey round the dial. It was the captain who had spoken. As soon as they heard the diving alarm he was out of his bunk, and a glance at the gauge he has fitted in the wardroom told him we were not sinking rapidly. In an instant he had put his finger on the trouble, which was that we were almost head-on to the sea, with the result that he had given the order as stated above, which, bringing us beam-on to the sea, had caused her to dive with ease. He is efficiency itself. As I explained to him what had happened, the noise of propellers at varying distances from us overhead led him to state his belief that we had run into a convoy homeward bound to Southampton from the Atlantic. He approved of my actions in every particular, save only in my omission to bring the boat away from the sea as I began to dive. This morning we are beginning to get the full force of what is evidently going to be a southwesterly gale of some violence. The seas are getting larger as we debouch into the Atlantic. This looks bad for business. New Entry At the moment we are practically hove-to on the surface, with the port engine just jogging to keep her head on to sea, and the starboard ticking round to give her a long, slow charge of two hundred amps. The wind is forced seven to eight and a very big sea is running which makes it entirely impossible to open the conning-tower hatch. The engine is getting its air through the special mushroom ventilator, which is apparently not designed to supply both the boat's requirements and those of the engine, and the whole ventilator gets covered with sea every now and then, during which period, until the baffle drains get the water away, no air can get in, so the engine has a good suck at the air in the boat and the result of all this being a slight vacuum in the boat. It is a very unpleasant sensation, and made me very sick. This is really a form of sickness due to the rarefied air. I had a great surprise when I looked at the barograph this morning, as the needle had gone right off the paper at the bottom, and at first glance I thought we had struck a tropical depression of the first magnitude, which, flouting all the laws of meteorology, had somehow found its way to the English Channel. But the engineer explained to me that, as I have already stated, the low atmospheric pressure in the boat was due to the conning-tower hatch being shut down. I have discovered that von Weissmann is a martyr to seasickness. All day he has been lying down as white as a sheet, and subsisting on milk tablets and sips of brandy. Yet such is the man's inflexibility of will that he forces himself to make a tour of inspection right round the boat every six hours, night and day. It is this will to conquer which has made Germans unconquerable, though come the four corners of the world in arms against us, as the great poet says. We are, of course, keeping watch from inside the conning tower. 
It is at all events dry, but as to seeing anything one might as well be looking out through a small glass window from inside a breakwater. To bed till 4 a.m. New Entry A most unprofitable day. I grudge every day away from Zoe on which we do nothing. This morning about noon the gale blew itself out, but a heavy, confused sea continued to run. At 2 p.m. we saw a most tantalizing spectacle. A big tank steamer, fully 600 feet long and of probably 17,000 tons burthen, hove in sight, escorted by two destroyers. To attack with the gun was impossible, as we could only keep the conning tower open when stern to sea, and in any case the two destroyers prevented any surface work. We tried to get in for an attack, but we had not seen her in time and the best we could do was to get within three thousand yards, at which range it would have been absurd to have wasted a torpedo, the chances of hitting being a hundred to one against, even if the torpedo had run properly in the sea that was on. I had a good look at her through the foremost periscope, in between the waves, and it maddened me to see all that oil, doubtless from Tampico for the Grand Fleet, going safely by. The destroyers were having a bad time of it, crashing into the sea like porpoises, their funnels white with salt, and their bridges enveloped in sheets of water and spray. They little thought that, barely a mile away, amidst the tumbling, crested waves, a German eye was watching them. There is no doubt these damn British have pluck, for it was the last sort of weather in which one would have expected to find destroyers at sea and yet I suppose they do this throughout the winter. After all, one would expect them to be tough fellows, they are of Teutonic stock, though by their bearing one might imagine that the Creator made an Englishman, and then Adam. Let's hope we get some decent weather tomorrow. I have just been refreshing my memory by reading of what I wrote in the book concerning the day in the forest with the adorable girl. There is an exquisite pleasure in transporting the mind into such memories of the past, when the body is in such surroundings as the present, if only I could will myself to dream of her. New Entry A fine day, in every sense of the word. The weather has been and remains excellent, and I have been present at my first sinking. It was absurdly commonplace. At ten a.m. this morning a column of smoke crept upwards from the southern horizon. Von Weissman steered towards it on the surface until two masts and the top of a funnel appeared. We dived and proceeded slowly under water on a southerly course. Half an hour passed, and Von Weissman brought the boat up to periscope depth and had a look. He called to me to come and see, an invitation I accepted with alacrity. With natural excitement I looked through the periscope, and there she was, unconsciously ambling to her doom like a fat sheep. She was a steamer, British, of about four thousand tons, slugging home at a steady ten knots, but she was destined to come to her last mooring place ahead of scheduled time. We dipped our periscope, and I went forward to the tubes. Five minutes elapsed, and the order instrument bell rang the pointer flicking to stand by. I personally removed the firing gear safety pin and put the repeat to ready. A breathless pause. 
then a slight shake and destruction was on its way, whilst I realized by the angle of the boat that Weissman was taking us down a few meters. That shows his coolness. He didn't even trouble to watch his shot. Anxiously, I watched the second hand of my stopwatch. Weissman had told me the range would be about five hundred meters. Thirty seconds. Thirty-one. Thirty-two. Thirty-three. Has he missed? Thirty-four. Thirty-five. Thirty... A dull rumble comes through the water, and the whole boat shakes. Hurrah! We have hit! And the order, surface, comes along the voice-pipe. The cheerful voice of the blower is heard, evacuating the tanks. I run to the conning tower, and closely follow Weissman up the ladder. At last I am on the bridge. There she is! What a sight! I feel that I shall never forget what she looked like, though, if all goes well, I shall see many another fine ship go to her grave. But she was my first. I felt the same sensation when, as a boy, I shot my first roe-deer in the black forest, one instant a living thing beautiful to perfection, the next my rifle spoke, and a bleeding carcass lay beneath the fine trees. So with this ship. I am a sailor, and to every sailor every ship that floats has, as it were, a soul, a personality, an entity. To carry the analogy further, a merchant craft is like some fat beast of utility, an ox, a cow, or a sheep, whilst a warship is a lion if she is a battleship, a leopard if she is a light cruiser, etc., in all cases worthy game. But war has little use for sentimentality and in my usual wandering manner I see that I have meandered from the point and quite forgotten what she did look like. What I saw was this. I saw that the steamer had been hit forward on the starboard side. The upper portion of the stem-piece was almost down to the water-level. Her foremost hold was obviously filling rapidly. Her stern was high out of the water, the red ensign of England flapping impotently on the ensign's staff. Her propeller, which was still slowly revolving, thrashed the water, and this heightened the impression that I was watching the struggles of a dying animal. The propeller was revolving in spasmodic jerks, due, I imagine, to the fast-failing steam only forcing the cranks over their dead centers with an effort. A boat was being lowered with haste from the two davits abreast the funnel on one side, but when she was full of men, and, due to the angle of the ship, well down by the bow. Someone inboard let go the foremost fall, or else it broke, for the bows of the boat fell downwards, and half a dozen figures were projected in grotesque attitudes into the sea. For a few seconds the boat swung backwards and forwards like a pendulum. When she came to rest, hanging vertically downwards from the stern, I noticed that a few men were still clinging like flies to her thwarts. Truly, Anything is better than the Atlantic in winter. Meanwhile the ship had ceased to sink as far as outward signs went. I mentioned this to von Weissmann, who was at my side with a slight smile on his face, amused, doubtless, at the eagerness with which I watched every detail of this, to me, novel tragedy. He answered me that I need not worry, that she was being supported by an airlock somewhere forward, that the water was slowly creeping into her, and her boilers were probably soon go. This remarkable man was absolutely correct. There was an interval of about five minutes, during which another boat, 
evidently successfully lowered from the other side, came round her stern, picked up one or two men from the water, and also collected the survivors in the hanging boat. Then the steamer suddenly sank another two feet. There was a dull rumbling, as of heavy machinery falling from a height, a muffled report, a cloud of steam and smoke, a sucking noise, and then a pool in the water, in the middle of which odd bits of wood and other buoyant debris kept on bobbing up. Nothing else. No, I am wrong. There were two other things, a U-boat, representing the might of Germany, and a whaler with perhaps twenty men in it, representing the plight of England. As she went I felt hushed and solemn. It was an impressive moment. A slight chuckle came from imperturbable Weissman. He had seen too many go to think much of it, and he gave an order for the helm to be put over, so that we might approach the whaler. They were horribly overcrowded, and were engaged in trying to sort themselves into some kind of order. We passed by them at fifty yards, and Weissman, seizing his megaphone, shouted in English, "Goodbye." steer west for america a cold horror gripped my heart it was an awful moment i dare not write the thoughts that entered my head i turned away my head and faced aft that he should not see my face looking back i saw the whaler rocking dangerously in our wash and then a commotion took place in her stern from which a huge bearded man arose and shaking his fist in our direction shouted something or other before his companions pulled him down. Von Weissmann heard, and his lips narrowed in. I held my breath in suspense, but he evidently decided against what he had been about to do, for with the order, Course North, Ten Knots, he went below. I remained on deck watching the rapidly receding whaler through my glasses, until she was a mere speck, alone on the ocean, hundred and fifty miles from land. Then the navigator came up, and with strangely mixed feelings of exultant joy and depressing sorrow, I went below. Von Weissmann was in the wardroom. I watched him unobserved. He was humming a tune to himself, and had just completed putting a green dot on the chart. This done, he lay back on the settee and closed his eyes. Strange, insoluble man! For long hours I could not forget that whaler. I see it now as I write. I suppose I shall get used to it all. What would Zoe say? The most wonderful thing about man is that he can stand the strain of his own invention of modern war. End of section.